This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how are you this afternoon? Great to have you along. And shortly before those news headlines at half past 12 today, checking in with Meat and Livestock Australia just to see what it's thinking about the national cattle herd, which is due to increase by well, just over a million head this year to 27.2 million head for 2022 and really honing in on what's happening with the cattle herd here in Western Australia. Obviously, it is really tiny compared to the national herd, but um, around about 2.4 million head here in WA after growing by about 200,000 head this year in this state. Catching up with Steve Bignall from Meat and Livestock Australia shortly here on the Country Hour, six past 12. And in the last 24 hours, Parts of the Kimberley have received a lot of rain. Shortly, just after half past 12 today, Richard Hudson will be in the studio to go through those figures. But the one that just jumps out at you is 652 millimetres for Country Down Station, which is just north of Broome in the West Kimberley. Are you listening this afternoon? It would be so great to catch up with someone from Country Down Station uh, just to see how you're going after receiving that much rain. Now, the calls have gone out. We haven't heard back yet. I understand you're busy, but if you are on Country Downs listening today, text through, let us know what is happening. That text, 0448 922604. It would be great to hear from you this afternoon. Shortly, you'll hear from the manager of GoGo Station between Fitzroy and Halls Creek. Uh, wait until you hear the water volume figures he's talking about. But not far from there is Roebuck Plains, which is about 30 kilometres east of Broome. It is a big day for the Yaru traditional owners of that area because today they are officially taking over the pastoral operations at Roebuck. It's a move that's been, well, years in the making. And as part of the transfer, 15,000 head of cattle will be purchased from the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation. Traditional owners say it's a new era for Yaru participation in the Kimberley pastoral industry. Welcome to Gumranganjal, Yaru country, a beautiful Yaru country of the cattle of Roebuck Plains Station. The station sits 30 kilometres east of Broome with room for 20,000 head of cattle. Our old people have mustered on this country. They've tilled the soil. They've brought the cattle in. They found the windmills. They found the water. Now, as Yaru traditional owners take over pastoral operations at Roebuck Plains, they're looking to build on that legacy. Our old people have lived off this land. They have endured the many long hours my mother and father and my grandmothers, my uncles, my aunties, all have been here on this cattle station. And we're very proud of them. It's been a long time coming. It's been a years of uh, long stories, Bugatti Gara. It's been a long year of planning to take this country 
and give it back to our people. Our land of Yaru, Gumrung and Yalit School. The handover of pastoral operations has been in the pipeline since the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation, or ILSC, handed back the station to Nyambaburu Yaru eight years ago. I'm Joe Morrison. I'm the Group Chief Executive Officer of the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation. It's a day of celebration uh, for all involved and certainly a signal of the times to come in terms of Indigenous people both in that part of the world, in the Kimberley, but also uh, around the country in determining their own futures. And that's something that we're seeing uh, more and more often. And it's a, it's a point of celebration in Australia becoming more mature. Nini Mills, uh, CEO of Nyambaburu Yarra. This will be a very significant milestone for Yarra people. It will be the first commercial venture of this scale that we're taking on. Um, and given the cultural connections to this country, um, just adds that extra special kind of um, meaning to us. The RLC has supported Yarra very much so with our capacity development, making sure that we're ready. So, you know, from 2014 to 2022, um, that's a fair bit of time that we've been on the journey together. So we feel well placed to do what we need to do and operate the station on our own right within our you know, own capacity. We've already recruited um, very skilled and experienced industry experts to support us with the practical aspects of the management of the station. Uh, those staff have been employed and worked under RLSC's management previously, so they're very familiar with robot planes um, and they're well placed to support us as we move forward on our journey. And the employment opportunities won't just be in agriculture. People go to Cable Beach to ride on camels, you know, I'm sure that many people would love to come to Robot Plane Station and hop on a horse. So, yeah, there'll be, we're looking at broader kind of employment pathways um, and what we're trying to do with the station is apply a holistic development um, agenda. And so what that means is that we'll consider thoroughly our social, environmental and cultural um, foundations and um, use that and leverage that and harness that to ensure that the commercial venture is, you know, generating broader outcomes. For Yaru Prescribed Body Corporate Chairman Benjamin Dolby, those broader outcomes should be wide-ranging. For the next generation, it'll provide, hopefully with the training and give them more opportunities for employment within the cattle industry and also for the next generation to be able to protect the areas that through the IPA that we're already protecting and carry on what I think our ancestors want us to do as well and our elders is protecting them high cultural value areas within the robot plantation. Yeah, that protection role is probably one of the most important roles because the areas that we're protecting, the jillers, that all links with our cultural ceremony stuff that's practised through our cultural law, which is highly sensitive like for us to, I suppose, protect, I think. So it's one of the high priorities, I think, is protecting them jillers because it's all linked with our song lines and our cultural traditions within this land anyway. It is such a fabulous and so moving for us to protect the jillers that was once here to take care of all our water soaks, to take care of the land that feeds the cattle, that feeds the animals. All our bush tucker will be preserved. All our water holes will be maintained. Being on country and in places when you're talking in language, it makes it a lot easier. And for personally, for me, if you're there, 
learning names of places and areas is a lot easier and probably it feels a lot better being on country than just sitting in a in a in the classroom learning all this stuff. So I think being on country means and it'll give them more connection with country as well, which I think is more beneficial than being within a classroom anyway. Language and culture grew in this country. It's part of us. Nyamba Buruyaru Cultural Coordinator Diane Appleby ending that report by Eddie Williams. There's an online story. It's up for you now. It went up just a couple of hours ago. So you can read through that story online right now. Just search Roebuck Plains Kimberley ABC. That's Roebuck, R-O-E, Roebuck Plains Kimberley ABC. 13 past 12. Rob Lafroy, Nelbra Station, in the Murchison. I love the listening to the country every day. On ABC Radio WA. The latest projections from Meat and Livestock Australia has the national cattle herd growing by just over 1 million head to 27.2 million head in 2022. Here in Western Australia... The herd should grow by about 200,000 head to just over 2.4 million head. So a drop in the ocean, uh, the herd here in WA, compared to the size of the national herd. Steve Bignall is the Market Information Manager at Meat and Livestock Australia. Steve, how long is this growth trend set to continue? So we've got the national cattle herd from our model is growing 4% to 27.2 million uh, this year. And when we look through to longer term projections through to 2024, we've got it growing 8% on current levels to 28.3 million head. And what's really driving that rebuild? So what we have got it is actually uh, revised down slightly a little bit on what we had projected in 2021. But the big piece is Southeast Australia is in its third year of rebuild or going into its third year of rebuilding, 2020, 2021, 2022. Northern Australia will kick off its rebuild after this wet season and WA will be entering into its second season of rebuild. And driven largely by what though? Is it purely seasonal conditions that's behind that rebuild, Stephen? Yeah, it is. So it is definitely uh, driven by weather. Interestingly, when we look at BOM, uh, none of Australia is drought declared at the moment, though we know that some of the areas, mainly on the east coast, where they came out of pretty substantial drought up until 2019, they needed successive wet years to drive that. And that's where the rebuild really, uh, the sentiment is coming from, is for those successive wet years that we're seeing now across all of Australia. And how much does it vary, that rebuild, when you break it down state by state? So we're expecting an extra uh, 200,000 head in WA, but the rest of that sort of um, 1.1 million head rebuild will be happening on the East Coast, largely in Queensland. And is that the usual trend? Is that usually how things unfold or you're seeing something a little bit different this time around? Uh, it, it's how we normally see it. Queensland has the majority, close to 50% of the national herd. So what happens in Queensland does drive the uh, national herd rebuild. Though what we are seeing is we are seeing that sort of Victoria and New South Wales, because they are ahead in terms of where the rebuild is at, we are seeing a bit of weight coming from those southeastern states. And then what about those figures that you're seeing here 
in Western Australia. What does the modelling reveal about the cattle herd here in WA? You said it's expected to increase 200,000 head for 2022? Yeah, in 2022. So it will be getting uh, north of 2.4 million head into 2022. Okay. So where, where does that sit then, that sort of figure historically here in WA? So we've sort of fall. It, it's the ebbs and flows of the weather has been this high previously. There's probably a few dynamics. We also catch what's happening in the dairy herd. So if we look at what's happening in the WA dairy herd, that has been impacted. But we are sort of seeing a return or a bit of a, a rebuild of quite some strength in WA with this 200 um, head growth in a year on year. And in the last couple of years, we have seen quite a few numbers of cattle heading east. Is, is that expected to continue into this year? Not we don't necessarily look at where the tra- where the transfer will happen from cattle from east to west or back. We look at sort of the macro figures. So we're looking at the rebuild and joining in each state, and we're looking at sort of slaughter in each state, production in each state, and not we don't necessarily look at where those transactions are heading. All right. What about the prices here in Western Australia? If we just hone in on this state for a second, Steve, what are you seeing in comparison with those prices for cattle when you look at, you know, those main indicators, the wiki here in the West compared to what's happening with the ecchi in the East? So at the moment, the uh, both, both indicators are performing uh, really well. The wiki is above $11 again. So it, um, at today, it stands at 1,102.17 cents per kilo and, and with a really significant throughput. We've got 1,700, nearly 1,800 head going through the wiki at the moment, which is significantly up on, on sort of where we saw it at parts last year. So that's really encouraging that we're getting a high volume of high value cattle at the moment. In the projections, we don't get the analysts. So we go out to six analysts, Thomas Elder, Rabo, Auctions Plus, NAB and ABARES to give us where they have the ECI, so the, um, where they have that uh, pegged at the middle of the year. And they've got that at 998, which is a reduction of 11%. All right. Where, where does that sit historically then when you're looking at those indicators, Steve? So the 10-year average for that is at 660 cents per kilo. So even a fall back to back to 998 is still significantly higher than where we have been sitting for the 10-year average and only 2021 prices would be higher. What about the export market opportunities and also the challenges? What are you seeing for this year? So what we're seeing in 2024, we're going to have our highest level of production from a beef perspective ever at uh, 2.45 million tonnes, even higher than 2019 when as a nation we were going through the drought liquidation of of cattle. So what we're seeing is slaughter increasing, which is leading to production increasing, which is leading to export increasing. Uh, We've got slaughter going up 31% in the next three years, production up 32% and exports up 30%. 5% through to 2024. So as we see that slaughter, as the rebuild matures, we see that slaughter uptick, we're seeing it flow through to production and exports. And and when we did have exports down this year, it was not demand driven. It was because we had the lowest slaughter in 35 years. What about all those COVID challenges around transportation, supply chains, uh, the staff shortages factor. How does that all factor into what is an, an optimistic outlook 
for export. So, so we've got slaughter up 11% to 6.7 million, though we are coming off the lowest base in, in 35 years. So we know that the supply chain has the capacity to increase by that much. We've got forecasts of slaughter of 7.85 million cattle by 2024, and that's an increase of 31% yet that's still below the 10-year average. So we know that there is the capacity in the supply chain and it won't be supply that constrains it this year. There could be some supply chain um, and labour shortage issues that affect slaughter levels, but we don't expect that to be significant. What about on the live export front? What are you seeing there? We've got live export pegged at 750 head this year and it was 771 last year so it's only a slight reduction of three percent this year uh that will be as sort of the north does rebuild we'll see people hold on to cattle like they did last year before increasing 14 percent to 880 in 2024 from a producer's perspective how would you feel i think it's good we've been having record prices last year really through from 2020 to 2021. So there's been high prices being received by producers. Some have been keeping cattle to rebuild their herds. But what we're seeing is that the um, picture is still very, very uh, positive as we move through to 2024. You know, we're going to have a hot, bigger herd. We'll be slaughtering again. We'll be able to meet those export markets. And that'll keep prices um, stable and, and elevated. We are talking prices in very high territory when we look at a historical context. Steve, thanks so much for going through those details. I I know you are a a WA local. You used to listen to the Country Hour while driving around on the head around the paddock, but now based in Sydney, how's the big smoke treating you? It is good. Um, It is good. And over here, what we've seen is we're we're sort of hopefully through the COVID um, Omicron outbreak and we expect to see that we're through at this end. And and I know that that was going to be some of the issues affecting um, the supply chain, but hopefully we're through that. Oh, there's a forecast on the on the COVID virus too. So good to know, Steve. And they're going to let you back into Western Australia anytime soon? Uh, Hopefully, hopefully. Hopefully getting back in April. All right. That'll have a few jobs for me to do. <laughs> I'm sure. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Cheers, Belinda. Steve Bignor, he is from Meat and Livestock Australia. He's the market information manager um, and looking forward to getting some of those jobs done at the farm when he gets back, if he's allowed back in. 23 past 12. Well, one development that could eventually have a flow-on effect for beef prices is China's ban on a growing list of Australian exporters, the latest being meat processing giant Tease Australia. The Naracourt-based meatworks in South Australia's southeast is the 10th Australian abattoir to have a temporary suspension slapped on it by China. Now, China's ban was put in place following a major COVID outbreak at the Court facility just last month. CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council, Patrick Hutchinson, says if history repeats, teas will be locked out of China for some time. Well, obviously this means at this current time, their establishment and every establishment in Australia has a number. Their establishment number has, uh, is now in the, uh, in, the, in the system in China as, as being temporarily suspended. So that will mean that they won't be able to pack any product for China. And even if they tried to do it and it landed in China, it would be rejected. So 
at this stage at the port. So not much point in actually doing it. So that's the that's what's what they're facing at the moment. Is China one of their major customers? I think that certainly with teas across the board and for teas at Narracourt, uh, their major supplier and their major customer actually was, uh, at the moment, has been Woolworths. So that's probably one of the reasons why that we've had uh, or seen some of the supply chain pressures that have been applied. And unfortunately, this is what happens, and this is what has happened with the supermarket supply chain, is that it is applying pressure back on those that are supplying it to ensure that it keeps momentum and keeps process moving. And unfortunately, at this time, with, with the, the different interventions that these, together with the South Australian government, tried to make, has unfortunately led to this uh, temporary suspension. The other meatworks that have been banned to exporting to China for this very reason, have they been able to start exporting again? No, they haven't, whether that be for COVID, whether that be for current residue issue or whether that be for labelling, which was back in May 2020, that none of them have been able to move just yet. So this ban, while it's talked about as temporary, there's potentially no real end in sight? Well, currently, based on previous experience, no. But look, as an organisation and as an industry, we have a pretty strong relationship with our colleagues in China. Uh, We have a number of MOUs within China and we've also got a pretty strong relationship with the Chinese embassy. So we work pretty hard to try and, and, and explain from this end of the table, from a commercial end, where these companies are, what they're actually doing, give them information about uh, COVID safe plans and, and or you know, new labelling requirements or residue management, as well as the federal government does go out and provide all that information through to their counterparts. So there's a G2G component and there's a B2B component that goes with this. But look, as well as that, there also needs to be a strong relationship across the board and at this stage we don't have that. Does this have implications for the wider industry? Oh, always. And I think farmers need to be very, very clear that at any stage when these sorts of unfortunate issues occur, that, yeah, it does have uh, certain impacts on farming, it has impacts on other things like that, and especially around the price. But, look, at the moment uh, there are many other markets that are taking up the cudgels for our product in Japan, uh, or Korea, and then we've obviously got the opportunities that we see in, in other markets, including the UK, for higher-grade product that China normally takes. But I think we can't be blind to the fact that even if we looked at the UK as an example, the amount of product that we would be sending to UK in the first quarter year is less than the market share we've lost in China. So what we've also got to recognise is that the time for a better relationship with China is now, but the time for understanding how we can get things done more effectively and efficiently for Australia's biggest agribusiness is now. Otherwise, you know, there's potential that we can see this moving forward. China has every right to be able to implement any suspension it deems necessary against its own internal standards because Australia more than happily does the same to China and many other nations around the world. So that's just a normal practice in trade. But I think that we've also got to recognise that The time for recognition of trade in the China relationship certainly is now and let's have that discussion certainly in an election year. So how do you imagine that repairing of that relationship is going to go? I think that there's a lot to be done in that space. There's a number of different areas and look, trade, we we have a fantastic relationship with Ministers uh, Tian for trade and a little proud for agriculture and they work pretty hard to try and make relationships uh, and the relationship work. 
However, I think that, that, you know, obviously we know it's a broader issue. There's a broader issue around a number of different key aspects of the Australian community, our principles, uh, as well as issues such as defence and our own relationships with other nations around the world. So I think it's, it's exceptionally complex. But I think that what we've also got to see is, is that these things and these issues are going to continue to happen where China is going to be more sensitive to issues in relation to their standards. And because we don't have a dialogue with China at the moment, that we had in 2019 and previous, then in fact, you know, the, this is where, when these issues occur, we don't know about it until it goes on to their own uh, general admission, administration of customs website. And before 2019, before COVID, I think we should remember that in 2019, we sent 3,000 tonnes of beef to China, as well as 100,000 tonnes of sheep meat for a $3 billion a year trade in China for red meat on its own. So I think that there's a lot that's been lost and a lot that we can gain. So I think that as we progress down this path, that the reintroduction of better trade and lifting of temporary suspensions will be good news for a number of processes, but then the farmers that supply them as well. Australian Meat Industry Council CEO Patrick Hutchinson speaking to Megan Hughes. Well, meanwhile, Trade Minister Dan Tian says the federal government is working alongside T's to get its export licence to China reinstated. It is concerning and we're doing everything we can to make sure that, that we can re-establish these markets for these, these meat processes. And we've called on, on the Chinese authorities to, to follow the proper processes and procedures that most countries follow, especially when it comes to COVID outbreaks in meat establishments. So far, we haven't been able to get the Chinese authorities to address it, but we will continue to make very strong representations and, and seek to get the outcomes that we know the Chinese people want because they have shown that they have a strong willingness to want to purchase Australian meat and also what our Australian exporters want, which is the ability to be able to sell into the Chinese market. Trade Minister Dan Tian, 29 to 1. What is happening in the headlines? Well, Helen Kaur is here to let you know. Good afternoon, Melinda. Western Australia has today recorded 13 new local cases of COVID-19. The Health Department says it's investigating five cases which are not linked to any existing clusters. It says some of the cases have been infectious in the community and exposure sites will be uploaded to the Healthy WA website when they are confirmed. The state has also reported 11 new cases involving returned travellers in quarantine. The former chief executive of the Shire of Ravensthorpe in WA's Great Southern has pleaded guilty to corruptly using public funds to pay for sex. Gavin Pollock was charged after a Corruption and Crime Commission investigation revealed he'd created fake invoices to cover up his use of council money to pay a sex worker dating back to March 2020. The Triple C found the payments totaled almost $55,000. Pollock appeared in the Perth Magistrates Court today and pleaded guilty to all seven corruption charges against him. And WA's Police Commissioner Chris Dawson says his department has advised more than 24,000 people to resubmit their G2G pass applications to enter the state. The call comes as WA prepares to expand the criteria for exemptions, allowing entry from interstate as of 5th of February. More news at one o'clock. Helen, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate that. It is 28 to 1.
This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Good afternoon. And before the news at one o'clock today, off to Muche for the results of the sheep market today. Tracy Kilner will go through yardings and prices for you. Also, catching up with the WA rock lobster industry, because usually at this time of year it is hectic in the lead up to Chinese New Year celebrations. But obviously those rock lobsters aren't going directly into China at the moment. So how is the industry coping, just looking around and exploring other markets? And of course, going through all the incredible rainfall results in the Kimberley, Richard Hudson in shortly to go through those figures for you. But off to the Bureau of Meteorology right now. Uh, Jerry Rawson, let's start in the north and just keep tabs on what's going on there with the incredible falls we've been seeing. What's the latest this afternoon? Yeah, so definitely all the action is around that broom area. We do have that uh, low-pressure system that's uh, basically over the southern border of um, the Kimberley, so uh, southeast of Fitzroy Crossing, but on the northwestern flank is uh, is where all the rain is falling, and and uh, Broome has certainly copped a lot of rain. So uh, tonight and this morning we had 323 millimetres, and that's on top of the 238 that we had uh, yesterday. So um, that's some significant rain. And just looking at the radar right now, there's another line of thunderstorms just on the southern side of the Broome Bay. So um, that, that is edging a bit close to Broome at the moment so that there could be a little bit more on its way. So as we uh, track through the next few days, that low pressure system is going to linger around that southern boundary of the Kimberley uh, until uh, basically Thursday. And then from Thursday, it's going to start moving out to the west and we're expecting it to move offshore from um, that uh, west. Kimberley Coast on Friday and then um, take most of the rain with it. So um, still expecting a fair bit of rain around today but not as much as yesterday and the day before and things easing a little bit as far as rain goes um, on Thursday and then when we get to Friday uh, we should be back to normal conditions over the Kimberley once that low pressure system moves away. So um, certainly interesting weather over the Kimberley at the moment. And just on what's going on in the Kimberley, Joey. Country Downs has apparently recorded 652 millimetres. Now, that's what we've got for the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, and we haven't been able to touch base with Country Downs. But would that that be accurate, or is that over a couple of days? What do you know? Yeah, we're we're looking into that as well. That's an absolutely massive number, so um, can't confirm if that is correct or not at the moment, Belinda. All right, be nice to touch base, but I'm sure they're very busy right now. Um, Now, the rest of northern and eastern parts, any more details than what you've just gone through with the Kimberley? Yeah, so we do have a severe weather warning out uh, for that low. So that's for uh, the potential for heavy rainfall and also damaging wind gusts. So wind gusts um, up to 100 kilometres per hour and also uh, rain uh, pushing down into the interior and also the uh, eastern parts of the Pilbara. So um, apart from that, um, that's uh, basically all we've got. And then as we track to the south, we don't have a lot, which is uh, good news. Uh, We just potentially might get a light shower over the south coast, uh, basically east of Albany um, tomorrow morning, and then we don't have any precipitation through the south of the state until uh, Sunday when we have a cold front that crosses the southwest of the state. 
Well, that's bizarre, isn't it? What's that going to bring? Oh, it's, it's kind of like a, a winter cold front that's going to cross the southwest land division. So it will bring some showers and some windy conditions and some cooler conditions. So temperatures getting into maybe the low 20s over the southwest of the state. Oh, we're getting a little bit of everything by the sounds of things. Uh, and warnings. Can you recap those warnings, Joey? Yeah, so there's a strong wind warning for the north Kimberley coast and there's another warning stretching basically from Lancelin all the way around the southwest uh, through to Esperance for the strong wind warnings. There's the severe weather warning over the Kimberley that I've just mentioned and there's also a fire weather warning for the Gascoigne, the interior, the Pilbara, the central west fire weather districts and and there's a moderate flood warning for the Fitzroy River and flood warnings for the Sandy Desert and the Kimberley District. So a heap going on, Belinda. Yeah, it is a long list. I appreciate you going through all those details, Joey. It is 23 to 1. ABC Radio, Fire Ban Information. Yeah, due to the risk of fire, a total fire ban has been issued today for a number of regions in Western Australia, in the Pilbara region, East Pilbara and Port Hedland, in the Gascoigne region, Carnarvon, Shark Bay and Upper Gascoigne, in the Midwest region, Kew, Mekathara, Mount Magnet, Murchison, Sandstone and Yalgoo, and in the Goldfields region, Laverton and Nandakuru. Um, in, and Waluna as well. Um, so during a total fire ban, you can't light fires for cooking, camping, outdoor entertainment, etc. No fire pits and bonfires. But it's not just saying don't light a fire because someone rang in yesterday and said we're not allowed to light them in summer anyway. So why do you read those, these out? Total fire bans also mean you can't carry out hot work such as grinding, welding, gas cutting in an area that's not fully enclosed. You're not allowed to go off-road driving using four-wheel drives, quad bikes, bobcats or similar vehicles, except for agricultural purposes. Um, so if you'd like more details on anything to do with total fire bans, just do a search on the DFES website, D-F-E-S, or you can do a search for Emergency WA for all the latest total fire bans. And that's also where you can find the latest fire information. And yesterday afternoon in Perth, late yesterday afternoon, gee, it was blowing a gale and I felt for the firefighters. You might not be hearing much about it on the radio at the moment, but there are a number of fires around Western Australia at the moment that are currently at a bushfire advice level. So that means there's no current threat to lives or homes, but even though there's no immediate danger, you do need to be aware and keep up to date in case the situation changes, which it could with those strong winds. So there's a bushfire advice in place for parts of Melaleuca, Mewshea and Bullsbrook in the city of Swan and Shire of Chittering. There's also one in the Avon Valley National Park and Moondyne Nature Reserve in the city of Swan. And there's one in place for the Lewin Naturalist National Park, so around the Conto Campground near Margaret River, uh, around uh, Baranup uh, Settlement in the Shire of Augusta Margaret River again, unfortunately, because that area was torched recently and it is very, very desolate and brown at the moment. I went past there only a few weeks ago. Uh, also one in place for Mealup Regional Park and parts of Naturalist and Dunsborough in the city of Busselton. A bushfire advice in place on Midlands Road between Carew and Wotheroo, just south of uh, Carew in the Shire of Carew. And also one in place between Yule River and Piwa River and Mundabulangana and Molina stations in the town of Port Hedland. 
But just getting to some of the rainfall figures, the only ones worth reading out are in the Kimberley, as Joey just mentioned. I won't read them all out, but some of the biggest totals were Anna Plains, 61, Bidjidanga, 134, Broome at the airport, 326, Cambalan, 61, Country Downs, as you mentioned, 652, by far the most, Curtin Airport, 12, Signet Bay, 94, Dampier Downs Airstrip, 82, Jubilee Downs, 51, Columbaroo, 41, Kilto Station, 122, Liveringa Station, 45, Lombardina Airport, 83, Nita Downs, 67, Udiala, 43, and Yampi Sound, 101. In case you're wondering if 6.52 in a 24-hour period is even possible, (laughs) it is. I can guarantee it. On the BOM website, it has some notable rainfall events all around Australia. And the ones in WA for a 24-hour period, the ones that I can see that are records are Broome. It actually has in brackets Kilto. In 1970, on the 5th of December, recorded 635 mils. But Roeburn in 1898, and I'm sure the figures were accurate in those days, 747 mils in a 24-hour period, which is pretty high. But I can remember when I was in far north Queensland, rural reporting, and there were some really serious rainfall events there, very, very heavy rain. Just near Cairns is the second highest mountain in Queensland called Bellenden Kerr, and that's the rainfall capital. And back in 1979, they had 960 mils in a 24-hour period. That is some serious rain. So have they got extra large rain gauges, or how do you get accurate <laughs> figures on on that? That's a very good question. I think they have buckets instead of just <laughs> rain gauges <laughs> or pools. <laughs> Uh, no, quite quite amazing rainfall totals. There is nothing else worth reading out for the rest of the state. I think there was one mill at Esperance, uh, which was about the only other rainfall reading that, that even rates a, a vague mention. But, um, but a, a, as you've heard, there has been a remarkable amount of rain over the West Kimberley in the past few days. At Fitzroy Crossing, the river is running at an absolute torrent at the moment, sitting above 11 metres and rising. There's currently a moderate flood warning for the Fitzroy River. And that's left stations between Fitzroy and Halls Creek cut off from the highway. But Phil Hams is at GoGo Station and he's welcoming all this rain. Well, it certainly looks wet, I guess. Actually, I only have to drive out the, only have to drive out the grid and look towards Fitzroy Crossing. Yeah, there's a few clues there because the road's shut and I seriously suspect it'll be shut for another, I don't know, three to five days, I suppose. The countryside was looking pretty good, but now it's uh, certainly got a hell of an advantage with this rain the last few days. Like uh, Fitzroy Crossing has had 265 mils since Friday. Fitzroy's right next, next door, of course. On top of that, I suppose for the month of January, uh, we've had about uh, 450 mils, uh, whether at the station or out at the farm, you know, something in something in that order. So you can imagine, you know, the benefits of that. The other thing we've got is a serious amount of water uh, coming down the river system. What's that looking like at the moment, Phil? I understand you're cut oh, off well, from Fitzroy at well, the moment. Well, um, yes, we are cut off. There's a, a lot of water coming down the uh, Bluebush Creek. But what's driving it is um, like Diamond Gorge is still on 175,000 megalitres a day. The Mount Caras has been a very interesting one. Yesterday it got up over, well over the 400,000 megalitres a, a day flow. 
And just keep in mind that Sydney Harbour is 500,000 megalitres and is almost a Sydney Harbour a day coming through Mount Carras and then hooking up with a high Fitzroy. But the Fitzroy itself, sometime today, will hit the, I think, will hit the 500,000 megalitres a day. It's uh, 484 right now, 1,000 megalitres. That's a lot of water pumping through the river. Well, it's massive. If you picture a Sydney Harbour going through under that bridge uh, in 24 hours, which is going to happen based on the numbers in front of me, that's um, that's a substantial amount of water. Somewhere in the near future, I'd like to think that more people could use that, um, not only rain asset, but the um, water asset to enhance the um, livestock feed and uh, stack feed away for, um, you know, those months when you haven't got it. I mean, that's that's what it should be all about. And what does it mean for pastoral stations like Gogo Station to have that much rain um, this early in the season? Oh, well, it can only, only enhance them. Having the moisture about, no question about that, makes all the difference. Does that make operations difficult for you? Because I know that daily you drive out to the farm where you're growing um, hay and feed for the, the cattle. Does that make, you know, just day-to-day tasks a little bit tricky when you can't even leave the homestead? Well, it's easier to have the rain grow than, uh, than starting and stopping pivots, etc. Absolutely. And what, what we do know is that that moisture is going into the soil and then when we plant uh, more uh, dry land, we know there's moisture there and regardless if it rains again on top of it or not, we know we can uh, grow a crop on the moisture that's in the ground. And you'd also have to say that getting rain over four, five, six days is a lot better than getting it overnight. You you mentioned earlier about the six inches up at um, uh, Kurt's place. That's a lot of water washing down in one night, whereas we've barely got that over two or three days. It's fairly relaxed rain event, but, but it's continuous, put the way. Yeah, there'll be some very happy cattle around Gogo today, uh, this all this week, I imagine, anyway. Yes, yes. You never know, particularly this time of the year, uh, how, how it's going to end up. And that needs to get started, and then it just seems to keep going for a while. And whether or not you get two or three years out of it or a year out of it, uh, we'll get to find out. Phil Hams, he's the farm manager at Gogo Station, about 11 kilometres south of Fitzroy Crossing, and he was speaking to Courtney Fowler. A moderate flood warning remains in place for the Fitzroy and Margaret Rivers. There's some amazing pictures that you can check out on the ABC Kimberley Facebook page if you want to make your way there. And also South Australian authorities estimate it's going to take 12 days for floodwaters to subside on the Stewart Highway before restoration works can begin. The Stewart Highway connects Adelaide and Darwin and has been closed for about a week, cutting off road freight to remote parts of South Australia and the Northern Territory. 12 minutes to one. G'day, this is Hamish McTaggart from Vigimire Station and this is the Country Hour on the ABC. You'll get the latest from Muche shortly. Tracy Kilner will be along. She'll go through the yarding and the prices at the Muche sheep market for you. 
And another case of COVID-19 has been detected at BHP's Yandy Mine in the Pilbara. Now, so far, there are two cases on site which have sent about 80 workers into isolation. Warren Pierce is the CEO of AMEC, the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies, and he says it was always just a matter of time. Once you've got um, the virus spreading in the community, we're going to be affected just like every other industry and every other part of the community. We're going to have people who have touch points in their time off, um, whether that's um, entertainment venues and their break or, you know, shopping shopping and supermarkets. We're all going to see a piece of this. The reality is we're all testing uh, and making sure that everyone who goes to sites on um, um, taking a rat, which means we're going to pick up these cases. So I'd be very surprised, honestly, if there's not um, a much wider level of virus in the community that isn't being picked up because cases are asymptomatic or testing isn't being done. So um, I just think this is, the, this is the beginning of what you're going to see a lot more of over the next several weeks until we get to a point where essentially the government calls time on the hard border and accepts that we've got to deal with a widespread community transmission um, and trying to work our way through it with high vaccination rates. I'll just clarify, you guys were, um, you wanted it to open obviously on the 5th uh, as planned, was it? Or 6th, I think. Yeah, that's right. So we, 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 were, we were very much expecting it was going to take place. The reason our desire to see it change is things have changed. We've done what's been asked of us. We've supported mandatory vaccination in the sector. Um, we've got our workforce um, almost entirely, entirely vaccinated. Um, we've had to you know, watch people depart the sector as a consequence of not wanting to get vaccinated. We need to be able to bring in workers from the eastern states. We need to be able to get our workforce back that's left. And that's become particularly important because we need to be able to bolster our workforce while we go through a period where there's going to be community transmission and we've got significant absentees and rates on site. But also we just we need new people to come in and help us continue to grow the sector. There's opportunity to invest in new projects and develop new projects, but we can't find the people to build them. So I think just to take advantage of the opportunities in our industry is really important. Obviously, we don't want to do anything or compromise you know, the health uh, and safety of the community. Uh, we don't think uh, opening the border will do that. The reality is we're going to have to go through a difficult period in order to get out the other side. Um, and all we're doing right now is stalling that period. It's not going to prevent it. It's just going to hold it off for a short, you know, for a short period of time. Warren Pierce is the CEO of AMEC, the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies, speaking to Jared Lucas. Ten to one here on the Country Hour, and today is the start of the Chinese or Lunar New Year. It's the year of the tiger, a sign associated with vitality, strength, and overcoming challenges. And those involved in WA's rock lobster industry will certainly be able to relate to all of that because for the third consecutive year, they've missed out on selling crayfish directly into China at this very lucrative time in the lead up to the New Year celebrations. Before COVID and China-Australia trade tensions started, about 98% of the crays caught in WA waters were exported to China. Terry Lissiman is the chair of the Western Rock Lobster Council and says despite the official lobster trade to China remaining firmly closed, the industry has managed to find new markets and is shipping good volumes. So there was there's two crises sort of about approximately a year apart. So the last two years have been difficult to say the least, but industry is very resilient. We've, we've actually pivoted very quickly and gone to a lot of our old markets that we used to do before China came on stream in a big way and um, diversified. Of course, a single market like China, which was very lucrative at the time, is also a risk because 
all your product is going to one place and that was acknowledged very early on and over the two years we've diversified quite a bit and sell to basically all over the world and a lot more to domestic Australia but at a lower price. So you're taking a lower price now but are you able to move through the volume that you were getting through before when China was a customer? Yes we are now. Essentially when China cut we had a few difficulties getting production up quickly, ramping up because a lot of the production facilities because with lobster you can have what they call whole cooked or you know processed things. A lot of the processing capacities had been diminished and made smaller because we didn't need that production capacity. The factories all had to sort of collectively very quickly change all that back up to suit the volumes that we were putting into China. Was adapting and changing very easy and did you find that those other markets that you turned to when China were no long, was no longer there, did you find that they were still interested in having lobster or did you really have to market to them again? We basically had to market to them again because um, we had walked away from those markets. Traditionally, when the West Australian lobster really took off in, say, the 50s, 60s, it was predominantly tail market to America, and uh, we walked away from the American market, say, 20 years ago, except for small volumes, when we started to get live exports into Asia and then subsequently China. So to go back to there, you had to re-establish trust and say that you were going to produce what you produced and produce the volume. So we started off at a very low base and we've gradually sort of lifted that up as, as we've proved because we've got an absolute beautiful product that comes out of pristine waters and it travels very well. So it's a highly valuable product. Do you feel like these are some pretty permanent changes to the industry, this diversification? I think you have to. It's, it's always been... Um, the industry's wish to have diversified markets. The economic imperative before with China was paying twice, if not three times, the value anywhere else. For economic reasons, you have to sort of get you know, some of that value in, but you should also diversify your markets so that all your eggs aren't in one basket. Has the value of the industry in WA been reduced over the last two years? Probably the asset values come off a bit because the asset values under the Chinese um, environment were not artificial, artificial is the wrong word, but were highly geared because it was um, such a, a large volume going through at quite a high price. It's a bit of a reflection similar to the analogy with iron ore when it was over $200 a tonne. You sort of make hay while the sun shines, but that's not reality. So it's come back a bit, but the industry is still strong and it's still operating very well. Are you finding that fishermen are leaving the industry or, or perhaps their children aren't as interested in, in taking on the family business, you know, given that it is perhaps not so lucrative anymore? I think it's, it's still a very, very good business. It's, um, they're mostly family operations. It's probably very similar in some ways to other rural industries like farming. It's traditionally been, you know, second or third generation families run it. So there's not much corporate involvement. But um, it's certainly, with the economy running in Western Australia very strongly, with mining, etc., it's hard to get workers because, obviously, it's not as lucrative as it once was, so you can't afford the wages to compete with mining companies, which are very good. So there's a difficulty that. But we don't seem to have lot, had dropped many people off in the two years, but it, it, it's been trending down for a while. Western Rock Lobster Council Chair Terry Lissiman with Bridget Herman. And Terry Lissiman says the price that fishermen are getting at the moment is about half of what it was pre-COVID. And he couldn't comment on the volume of product heading into Hong Kong and possibly through those grey pathways into China.
Four minutes to one and time to head to the markets. About 13,500 sheep and lambs sold at Mushay today. So numbers up about 5,800 on last week. But even though the numbers increased, I don't think the prices dropped off. Tracy Kilner's at Mushay for you now. Tracy, can you run through those prices? A mixed quality yarding with good runs of heavy ewe, mutton and prime and store lines of lambs. The lambs fluctuated with store lines trending down and good heavy lambs gaining with demand to sell to a top of $240 a head. Mutton remained firm on lightweights but gained on the quality heavy ewes offered, selling to $205 and a pen of large mature weather sold for $220 a head. In the lamb market, the under 12 kilo carcass weight lambs ease selling from $55 to $97 a head. Under 16 kilo carcass weight range made from $77 to $138 easing on demand. And the heavier under 18 kilo carcass weight range sold from $120 to $160 easing on quality. Live export paid $138 to $190 for these weights to secure types. Trade weight lambs saw light weights sell for $148 up to $198 for the heavier lambs to processes. Heavy lambs made from $190 to $240 a head. Hoggets sold from $180 to $196, while the young merino weathers made from $90 to $185 and young merino ewes from $70 to $180 a head, depending on quality. Lightweight and store ewes sold at $47 for very light score one ewes, up to $164 for good framed ewes carrying a full fleece. The prime trade weight used, 25 to 30 kilo carcass weight, made from $141 to $196 with a fleece. Heavy 30 kilo plus carcass weight used, sold at $190 to $205 with a fleece. And the best heavy weathers returned $180 to $220, while mature rams gained, selling from $70 to $130 a head. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much for that. Tracy will be back this time tomorrow. She'll go through the results at the Catanning Sheep Market for you. Now, earlier in the hour, just having a talk about the incredible rainfall that's been falling in uh, parts of the Kimberley, and one of the figures that really jumped out was Country Downs recording 652 millimetres of rain in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. But we haven't had confirmation that that is exactly what has fallen in that time period. Richard Hudson is in the studio and you've managed to get in touch with someone from Country Downs. I'd love to take credit for it, but in actual fact, it was Courtney Fowler, our reporter in Kununurra. And she did manage to get hold of the brand new governess at Country Downs Station, who's only been there a week. She's certainly copied what a welcome. <laughs> Wet welcome. She did confirm that they have had 652 mils in the last 24 hours. Although the owners aren't there at the moment, they're in town in Broome, so they're probably stuck in town. So I'm not casting doubts, but I'm just wondering if they taught the governess how to read the rain gauge before they took off. <laughs> so she's the official rain gauge checker. No, while the I don't know that. I don't know that. I should not. <laughs> I should not put any doubts into anyone's minds. I'm sure she is fantastic at reading rain gauges. And as I mentioned, it's it's certainly not a, a record anyway. But a lot of rain. It though, is isn't a it? lot of rain. Was she in the rowboat at the time? <laughs> the dinghy. <laughs> when you think of the totals that uh, some of the uh, the grain farmers rave about and then you'd think, wow, imagine if you got 6.52 in 24 hours. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> uh, that's great to hear. Hey, thank you for that, Richard, and thank you for being part of the show here on The Country on the ABC. 
It's time now to find out the latest ABC News. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.